Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Yunji Huang, alongside my co-host Anukriti Randev and Ragini Singh Panwar. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Trigger warning. Today's episode includes content dealing with upsetting, sensitive, and potentially triggering themes, including sexual violence, torture, and death. Sexual violence and armed conflict is not a new phenomenon, and this epidemic of sexual violence as weapon of war has existed for as long as there has been conflict. Sexual violence during armed conflict as a crime against humanity has been formally recognized through the establishment of the International Criminal Court, as well as in international instruments such as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1970. However, as stated in the 2022 Conflict-Related Sexual Violence Report of the UN Secretary General and shown in the ongoing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, women and children continue to suffer from sexual violence and the COVID-19 pandemic as well as heightened natural disasters have elevated risks of sexual exploitation. In recognition of the upcoming International Women's Day, this episode aims to break the silence around sexual violence, which is often a peripheral concern in any armed conflict. In the first segment, Dr. Noel Kenive will talk about the international legal and policy framework regarding sexual violence in armed conflict, including its limitations, and how the existing system can be improved to appropriately and effectively address conflict-related sexual violence. The second segment of the episode focuses on the situation in the Ukraine war, where Professor Kim Tui Sillinger provides some insight into the current efforts to investigate and prosecute cases of sexual violence in the invasion of Ukraine. Our first guest speaker today is Dr. Noel Kenive, who is a professor in international law at the Bristol Law School of the University of the West of England. Dr. Noel Kenive has published and edited books as well as written journal articles in the field of international humanitarian law, international criminal law, and human rights law, mainly on issues relating to children and women in armed conflict. Her latest book examines whether child soldiers can invoke duress as a defense under international criminal law. She holds a Master of Laws degree in international human rights law from the University of Nottingham and a PhD in law from the University of Essex. Join me in welcoming Dr. Noel Kenive in conversation with Anukriti Randev. Good morning, Dr. Noel. First question that we have for you is about what sexual violence in armed conflict is and what are the current legal frameworks that address this issue? So sexual violence can be almost put on, on a spectrum. You have, I would say, almost the, the, the classic rape that everybody knows about. But in fact, sexual violence can go from forcing someone to dance naked where there is absolutely no physical contact with the person up to sexual slavery and what we call also sometimes a phenomenon of bushwives. So especially girl child soldiers who have been given to um, another child soldier sometimes, actually, and they have to live and live in that marital relation with that person. So it can go from a single instance of sexual contact to loads of contact and sometimes in some cases absolutely no contact whatsoever. There's been cases uh, prosecuted before the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda uh, for making a woman dance naked. 
So sexual violence is, is much broader than what we tend to think. We tend to think violence means physical contact, but that is not the case. So in, in terms of the, the legal framework, there are three different legal frameworks we're looking at. The first one is human rights law. Obviously, treating a person in that way is going to be a, um, an attack on the person's dignity fundamental, you know, right, fundamental human dignity that we all have. But it can go as far as being a form of torture, especially if uh, rape is being used to elicit confessions or information. And we have seen this in an armed conflict that women are being raped in order to find out why where the husbands are hiding or whether they have further information. And sometimes also sexual violence has been used against men. We, we've seen that in the conflict in Chechnya, going back to what Russian soldiers ha- have been doing, where they sexually assaulted men infiltration camps in order to find out whether they were indeed fighting, whether they were Chechen fighters and what their plans were. So it is sadly quite often used also as a method to torture people. So you Human rights law is is one of the legal regime that we look at. Then in armed conflict, we have a special legal regime that we use, and that is international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict. And that particular regime is much more specific. And it it, it is almost, it it is used to deal with with armed conflicts, of course, and it is used to to deal with uh, poor treatment of of, of individuals. So one of the fundamental principles we have in, in international humanitarian law is a principle of humanity as simple as that we need to treat civilians with respect but also to protect them so respect is don't touch them and the protection is actually do something positive to so that they're not harmed and obviously rape is a you know you you, you need to to respect the, the person so that well, the person isn't being raped but at the same time there's an obligation to protect women or, or even men from being raped so and rape, sexual assault are actually specifically mentioned in the additional protocols. They even talk about indecent assault. So again, this, this lower threshold that I mentioned before. And the third legal regime that we use is international criminal law. And probably that's the one that you know, everybody's talking about at the moment with the ICC, you know, prosecuting. And there we've got pretty much, not everything, but a, a vast array of types of sexual crimes. We have forced pregnancy, we have sexual slavery. It's much broader than it used to be. And under international criminal law, we can prosecute sexual violence as war crimes, crimes against humanity, and in some instances, acts of genocide. So the legal framework, I would say, is is good, is, is solid. So while you mentioned that it's not limited to just rape, and we usually connotate the issue of sexual violence to women specifically. Uh, can you elaborate a little whether you agree with the argument that this is inherently this crime against humanity and all these concepts are inherently gendered? And also, can you establish a link between gender and sexual violence that has been historically seen and also specific to what is happening in Ukraine right now? Do you think it's any different from what has happened before or is it exactly the same and the current law is not really changing or deterring anything at all? So for me, there is no doubt that there is a gender element in in wars, but wars are inherently gendered. And we see always this, and it's still the case, that men are fighting and women are staying at home, taking care of the family, and that there is a division of tasks during an armed conflict. So it is gendered as such. Also, even if you look nowadays, the majority of the military forces are are male. I I did a bit of research a couple of, of days ago, looking at the number of female soldiers in the Canadian forces and actually Canada has one of the highest uh, numbers of, of female uh, members and that's 16% but it, it is just 16% when you think about it and that that still means that the, the soldiers on the ground are male and the most of the population that is fleeing you know refugees are, are, are women and children so we still have this gender division in terms of, of doing the fighting also there is a certain culture in the military that must be explained quite well and that makes the link between sexual violence in armed conflicts and the military. And that first link was made in a long time ago, actually, by Susan Brown Miller in 1975. 
her fantastic book. I mean, I say it's fantastic, but it's it's a it's a sad read. It's quite depressing to to read that book, to be honest. Um, but but she made the link between the risk associated with sexual violence in an armed conflict and the the military culture, showing that there is in the military a hierarchy, so you have to obey the orders. There is a need to conform. I have to be like the others, and a certain loyalty. We're all there together, and out of this comes the concept of masculinity, which has been used now for decades as a way to, as a prism through which we, we see armed conflict. Another element also that is now very much established is that there is a link between violence against women in peacetime and violence against women in, in times of armed conflict. What I mean by that is that society that are violent towards women, that discriminate against women, tend to be even worse in armed conflict. So that the problems that women face in an armed conflict are exacerbated. And when I think about Ukraine, sadly, it fits the picture because you, you see the, I wish I, I would say no, it, it's not, but actually it does. Because what is happening is that the Russian armed forces are very violent. It, it is a, there's a profoundly violent culture in there, unrelated to the conflict in Ukraine. But, but as such, there's been loads of reports on that for Decades again, there has been in the past few decades also heightened level of violence against women, uh, which wasn't a problem before, but which is now much more of a problem. And the armed forces in in the Russian armed forces in Ukraine are almost exclusively male. Uh, it, it is there are women in the armed forces of Russia, but we don't see them. They, they are not. No one has ever spotted them. So definitely, it fits all the patterns I've, I've explained before. I think it's actually scary because we see that in general the violence against women is increasing a lot due to the covid lockdowns happening and now with the war it's just getting out of hand uh so keeping in mind that as you mentioned that the legal framework is pretty elaborate uh in terms of punishing if certain these acts actually happen uh, however, we do see that a lot of times during war times, the war crimes related to sexual violence are not always prosecuted and most of the times are not even reported. So do you think that the reason for that is specifically related to the limitation of the legal framework? Or do you think that there are limitations within the framework that disallow the prosecutions or reporting to happen? I think what we need to, to remember is that the law has tremendously changed from the time we, we were talking about this being a big problem. So I think we're in a much better position in terms of the law nowadays. The prosecution is, I would say, better, but it's not great either. So one of the reasons we had originally as, as problems to prosecute in those for this type of crime was that those who were prosecuting were men. They just didn't think it was important. It's a woman problem. But you know, taking this attitude, you look at the Nuremberg trial, you look at the judges and thinking, okay, well, <laughs> that is not going to help. The second is that often rape was seen as a private matter, something that a soldier would do on the side, not part of the, the conflict was we now know that it is a strategy and th there is a clear thinking behind it about why we actually do it. And and we see this also about sexual violence perpetrated against men, that it is to debase the person that in, in that sense, it is gendered also because uh, you put the man in a situation of being a woman and that has an effect on the, the person's dignity. You can't see this we, we, as, a, as a private matter anymore. We, we did see them also. Another problem we had in the Nuremberg trial is that people didn't want to listen to these stories. They found this was awful, too much details. The, uh, the Soviet judge was like, I don't want to hear anything about this. This is just awful. And you think, well, you prefer to listen to someone being killed than someone being raped, obviously. And, and there was this unease about it that makes it as we don't want to prosecute it. This has completely changed, completely. And we, when we had the conflict in Yugoslavia, women's group were really forceful. They, they said, look, plenty of sexual violence has happened in the conflict. That needs to be prosecuted. And, and they managed to do very well. They, they managed to, to convince the prosecution to almost attach every time sexual crimes 
to the acts that had been listed. And we had an entire trial just on that, the Focha trial, which even included the tragic tragic story of, of a girl who was sold for sexual purposes. We've done so much better, in fact, in terms of convincing the prosecution that it is necessary to prosecute these crimes. There's a gender advisor also in the ICC. There was one in the ICTY. That changes completely the way we, we look at that prosecution. So yes, much better, but but still, it's 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 not ideal. I agree, and I think as you mentioned that the women's group in the Yugoslavia war was a great help in making sure that the prosecutions happened. Taking on to that, what do you think would the NGOs and different international organizations like? What kind of role do you think they would play specifically in the Ukrainian context? And do you think that ICC sending a team to collect evidence while the war is still going on? Do you think that would play a big role when the prosecutions or if they actually happen in the future? I mean, women's groups are a formidable support in in that. Always, you know, pointing at that these crimes have been committed, they need to be prosecuted as much as, you know, theft or other types of, you know, murders and so on. So they are there and they have amassed through the years a lot of knowledge, a lot of skills and competencies. And I've seen that they are on the ground helping the Ukrainian authorities to gather all this information, all this evidence. You're talking about the ICC. I think there is a lot of emphasis put on the ICC and the work it is doing. At the end, because of the principle of complementarity that says that the ICC will only take over, so to say, the prosecution, if on the national level the state is unable or unwilling, I don't think the ICC as such will be the primary force behind the prosecution for crimes of a sexual uh, nature, or any crimes, in fact, because they are the first place. The Ukrainian authority, judicial authorities, investigation, they are the first place where the crimes will be investigated and then tried. And they have indeed received collaboration from various states that have sent specific teams, which are, you know, very expert and... but. It's them. It's Ukraine that, that needs to do this. And I, and I think also it is better to leave it to the Ukrainian authorities, support them, provide them the know-how. But eventually crimes have, that, that's sort of my opinion, but crimes have to be prosecuted at the closest level of the people because then they can see that these crimes of sexual violence are taken seriously. And in fact, there has been already in Ukraine a Russian soldier prosecuted um, and tried in absentia, of course, for the rape of a woman. So it's good to have this and that also Ukrainian people do see that, that it is an important crime that we need to prosecute and that we are prosecuting. The ICC will come in, in into play at a later stage, I'm sure. Yeah, and I feel like it's important that they're prosecuted in Ukraine because then probably more people would report these crimes and actually come out with whatever is happening there right now. So I think you, initially you did mention about wartime pregnancies, and I think that's one of the issues that is probably least discussed in the international legal framework. So can you elaborate a little about if there's any policy or anything that you've come across that specifically tries to address this issue? So in in terms of pregnancy, you almost have the normal case, i to say this, that when uh, a person, a woman is raped, that she can indeed be become pregnant. And the really your framework is just not there. It, it is a rape under human rights law, under international law, under international criminal law, but the, the pregnancy that is the result of that rape is not dealt with. The only time we actually look at pregnancy being a crime is for the crime of forced pregnancy. And that is an absolutely new crime. But there in that situation, the the crime is to detain a person with the view to impregnating that woman in order for that woman to carry a child from a different ethnicity, nationality, and so on. So the, the crime is not so much the the sexual crime, it's that the person is then pregnant. So we have, you, you've got two types of pregnancy, so to say. One is considered in law and the other one isn't. We have seen instances of teenage girls being kept in a basement in Ukraine, being repeatedly raped. And in that case, and we, we know that some of them 
when we're pregnant. In that case, we, we, we see sexual slavery more than anything else. We actually don't see the, the, the pregnancy part of it. But I mean, we, we, we dealt with this already in the past. You know, the conflict in Yugoslavia, the conflict in Rwanda, especially. Lots of these children are now adults also asking questions. Um, and there are quite a number of studies about how the mothers have tried to relate and not to relate to these, these children. So the, the challenges are more physical for the mother, for the child, but also psychological. There, there might also be issues about sexually transmitted diseases, the woman having injuries to, to her reproductive organs. And this actually needs a, a wider support. It, it's not really the law that is going to help there. It's about providing full support, medical, psychological support to, to women in that situation. And also, um, might disagree on this, but provide them with an opportunity to have an abortion if they want to do so. And that has been a, a question that's been raised because a lot of Ukrainian women have gone to Poland, from, you know, crossed the border, went into Poland, and, and Poland has very strict law on abortion. So there's been quite a lot of discussion among women's groups about how to deal with that, that particular issue. I think, and, and it's actually very scary because we know that these situations, they don't have an impact like in the moment, but probably as you said, that it is a generational impact. So I, I also agree that there's hardly any policy or legal framework that could actually support, but we have to see what else can be done after mm-hmm. these things have happened. So when we talk about children and we see that they're actually the ones that are directly impacted by the war, not just in the moment, but also their education is impacted. And a lot of times we've seen that child soldiers and sexual exploitation, as you mentioned, directly impacts them. Uh, So are there any adequate safeguards within the framework that you think exist? And like, again, I think that probably they're also not as comprehensive as they should be. So the law isn't too bad, but again, it's the application of it, (laughs) which is always lacking or very difficult in terms of armed conflict. So United Nations Convention on the Rights of a Child has the best interest of a child. Really, you know, major legal provision there. Everything that is being done must be done with the best interest of a child in mind. In times of armed conflict, we have international law, but also applies the number of legal provisions that apply to children. Note, but I have to say children under the age of 15. Okay. In, in, in attachment and law, we, we, we tend to see children as those we do protect as those who are under 15. So those falling the bracket 15, 18 are not covered. In fact, here, if they are separated from their families, which unfortunately happens, happens quite often, the state is obliged to help them to, to, to make sure that they don't live on their own, that they're fully supported, that they're provided with education. But again, it is very difficult for the state to do this. You know, whilst in the midst of an armed conflict, you're fighting uh, at the same time, trying to, to gather all the children who have been separated is quite of a difficult task. So again, I think the law is appropriate. It's the application, which is very difficult. One additional problem we have in armed conflicts, and we've seen this more and more recently, is human traffickers. They just take the opportunity to, I mean, and not only for, for children, we've seen this also with women, you know, women coming in the border in Poland and People offering accommodation, work, food, shelter, and you've got to think twice, is, is that a genuine you know, offer for help? Or is that someone who's going to bring me and I will be trafficked? In the case of children, what we see is trafficking for sexual purposes, but also for labor. So there is a, a clear danger here, and the state needs to be very much aware of this. Make sure that they do account for the children who are there. It, it's a very difficult task. So it's, as I said, more the application than the law itself that that is problematic. When it comes to application, that's kind of, as you said, is really difficult when there is an armed conflict because the state wants to protect its sovereignty first and then maybe the other considerations come in. Uh, So I think the UN report on conflict related to sexual violence uh, from 2022 highlighted that there is a lot of in, like difficulty in implementing these policies and all these international standards that are there. So I think considering that the law and policy might not be the best and the most effective way 
Do you think that there are any other ways in which we can actually protect the interests of the citizens while a country is in a conflict? I think the first thing to do would be to train the armed forces. <laughs> because they are the ones that are actually, you know, doing the damage. So it'd be amazing if you could train the armed forces not to sexual assault anyone in a conflict, you know, or to comply with the laws of armed conflict in the first place. I think prevention is really key, but the training is really the first thing we need to think of. The second thought is that we need to make sure the civilian population is then able to take measures to ensure that this is not going to happen. And this also is, again, about informing the population of what are the types of problems we may encounter in an armed conflict. Like I said about the trafficking, genuinely, you come, you say, oh, well, someone is going to help me. You don't think twice. And maybe, you know, you, you with a proper dissemination campaign, you would think, ah, maybe I have to think here that there might be a problem that I might end up in a place where I really don't want to be. So better training, better information also provided to the general civilian population. It, it, it is quite remarkable. We always forget this, but the one of the obligations of states is to disseminate the laws of armed conflict to the general population. And when a conflict starts, people don't know about it. So what's that? Well, you should have known enough. You wish sometimes you didn't have to do the training because you don't want the conflict to start. But, you know, that's another way to prevent before anything happens. Yeah. And I think with the Ukraine war, most of us never anticipated something of this level happening in, you know, today's time. So I agree that we usually don't want to have these conversations, but I think with the world that we're living in, it's really important to actually be trained and also make sure that these things never happen. So keeping that in, ma- that in mind, uh, is there anything else you think that uh, would you want to discuss about any changes that you see in the legal framework or in general, the global kind of way of looking at these issues? As I said, I think the legal framework is quite good. Our problem is how effective it is in, 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 in real life. NGOs, women's group are doing a fantastic job, but they need to be fully supported. And that also means fully funded and that their work is taken seriously. In, in some countries, you know, these are like, well, women's groups who care about them. You know, they, they, they do an important job and they need to be not, on, not only supported financially, but also that the population needs to support them. The state doesn't put in place systems or mechanisms where it becomes really difficult for them to operate. We, we've seen this in some conflicts that women groups have not been able to access some areas and, and as a result, the population has suffered from it. The, the female population in particular, because you know women tend to, to prefer to talk to women about their, their, their problems, uh, especially of, of that kind. Like you said, if, if, if you want, if you have been raped and you want to report it, you have to feel that trust and that confidence. So a lot is about the local level and what we can do to make sure that there are these networks of support that if sexual violence has been perpetrated, that there is a way to report, to do it in a safe way and then to feel supported that this is a a decision that you've made and you know there will be help there. Too often what happens is these sort of instances are not reported. We we never know at the end of the conflict how many re- women have actually suffered sexual violence or even men. I mean, that is, that is even worse. We've prosecuted in the ICC rape on a man, but, you know, it, it took a lot of courage for that man to, to come and to, to explain what, what had happened. So I think it, it, it is important that we have this support uh, around those who have suffered sexual violence yeah thank you so much again and i'm sure that our listeners would get a lot of information about the situation in ukraine and hopefully things would change in the future and the war and soon we hope so too thank you so much thank you at beyond the headlines we aim to deliver content that is concise accessible and relevant but we wouldn't know where to start without knowing our audience. What makes you interested in global affairs and public policy? How do you like different features and production aspects of our show? Take five minutes to complete our feedback survey at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash feedback. 
adding your voice enables us to deliver more of what you want to hear and produce content that adds unique value to your routine. Next, we have Professor Kim Tui Sillinger, an expert on sexual violence and armed conflict and forced displacement. Professor Sillinger currently serves as a special advisor on sexual violence and conflict to the International Criminal Court Prosecutor in The Hague. She's also a technical advisor for the Global Survivors Fund, established by 2018 Nobel Peace Prize winners Dr. Dennis McQuij and Ms. Nadia Murad. Previously, she was an inaugural member of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees Advisory Group on Gender, Forced Displacement and Protection. She co-edited the President on Trial, Prosecuting Hissène Habré, and has won various honors for her work, including a Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio residency in 2015. She's currently a professor at the Brown School and a visiting professor at the Law School in the University of Washington in St. Louis. Here is Professor Kim Tui Sillinger in conversation with Ragini Singh Panwar. Good morning, Professor Sillinger. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Headlines today. We're very grateful that you have come to speak with us on such an important issue. Thank you for having me. So to start our conversation, uh, let us begin with the most basic thing. So what constitutes sexual violence in the context of armed conflict? And how does international law, specifically humanitarian or even criminal law, contend with it? Sure. We have a term that we use a lot, right? We hear this term of conflict-related sexual violence used um, by policymakers and in the media and academic work. It's not a legal term, but it is a good description, right? And it, it was really used by the UN Secretary General to refer to acts like rape and sexual slavery, forced prostitution, forced pregnancy, forced abortion, even enforced sterilization, sexual slavery, forced marriage, and other forms of sexual violence of that type of seriousness that happens to men and women and girls and boys that has some sort of link to an armed conflict, right? Whether it's a direct link or an indirect link. And that link can be found because of the nature of the perpetrator, it could be something about the nature of the victim or survivor, or it could just be tied to the general collapse and chaos of armed conflict that allows for acts of violence to go sort of unanswered, really. And so that's generally the working description that we think of when we refer to conflict-related sexual violence. Now, again, it's not a legal term. So we look at bodies of international law, like international humanitarian law, as you mentioned, which is the law of armed conflict, or international criminal law, which is where we're looking at individual responsibility, person, you know, an individual defendant might have for some of these acts. And they, depending on the statute and what tribunal you're talking about, the forms of sexual violence that are considered war crimes or crimes against humanity or in, you know, how one would be able to pursue them as acts of genocide might differ based on the tribunal and the statute that you have. But that is to say, just simply, you can prosecute crimes of conflict with sexual violence against an individual. You can also raise claims against the state for failure to protect or its state-level involvement in these crimes. You can also use international human rights law because all of these acts violate bodily integrity and a number of different protections and rights that we have as humans. So uh, moving on, why is investigating and prosecuting cases of sexual violence in conflict-related situations so difficult? You know, it's hard to investigate and prosecute these crimes even in downtown San Francisco or downtown Toronto. I mean, these are complicated crimes. There's a lot of taboo. There's a lot of shame and stigma attached to them for survivors, and even aside from the conflict situation. So I think a lot of the barriers that we see that are common in peacetime, you know, we will see as relevant in conflict-related periods too. But then you add on different levels of complication, right? You add on at the individual level, fear if the perpetrator was an armed actor, right? Or someone powerful uh, related to the armed conflict. Maybe you have different priorities in an armed conflict. Not only did this happen to you, but your house was burned down or soldiers have come after a family member. So oftentimes, these acts of sexual violence are just one of many things someone has experienced, and often they're not the first thing someone needs to seek help for, right? It's often deprioritized even by the survivor and their family for, for often very rational reasons, frankly. But then you have social stigma, you know, you have stigma anyway around sexual violence in most contexts, but in armed conflict, particularly where there's an ethnic element to it, 
if rape was committed by a member of what's seen as an enemy community, then what does that mean for the survivor and the added stigma that they have been sort of spoiled in that way, quote unquote, or any children that they may bear may have bad blood, right, um, of the enemy. So these are beliefs that are held at a community level that can really complicate reporting and disclosure, which in turn can inhibit access to justice systems. And then, of course, and I won't go into technicalities here, but you may have in conflict situations legal or institutional frameworks that are insufficient. Maybe the national law doesn't properly criminalize this particular form of sexual violence as an international crime, right? Or maybe the law does, but the institutions aren't trained to um, or, or don't have the resources or the capacity to conduct effective investigations, much less survivor-centered and trauma-informed investigations. So. You can see there are so many levels of barrier here that really make it hard to push a case forward for a lot of folks. I mean, the, the system is not friendly, and in conflict, there are added security and infrastructural challenges that might also complicate things. So how would you evaluate the success and the limitations of international courts, including the ICC, in effectively prosecuting sexual crimes? And then to what extent have these institutions deterred the occurrences of such crimes? If you look in the long arc of history, accountability for these crimes before tribunals is a very recent phenomenon. You know, rape has been happening, sexual servitude has been happening in war for centuries and centuries, and really never seen as a violation against the individual survivor, right? If anything, it was described as some inevitable side effect or corollary of war, or maybe a violation of some sort of family honor, right? It was a disrespecting someone's family, right? You, you brought shame on a family, and it's not necessarily been seen as a crime one would prosecute vis-a-vis that individual survivor until relatively recently. We saw consideration of rape and forced prostitution, actually, after World War II in domestic cases guided by the UN War Crimes Commission, in some cases, right before the Nuremberg and Tokyo Tribunals were established. And then when Nuremberg and Tokyo Tribunals were established right after the war, um, we did see some of this evidence in those uh, considered, actually, when, when they were looking at the atrocity crimes. And, and so that's that's been quite interesting earlier in the century. And then there was a bit of a flatlining and it wasn't until you know, we see the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and also the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda established where we started seeing much more robust jurisprudence about these crimes. So again, won't go into detail, but that pair of sort of sister tribunals, they happened around the same time, gave us some pretty powerful jurisprudence about how rape and other forms of sexual violence might be war crimes or crimes against humanity, even acts of genocide out of the Rwanda Tribunal. And also, more broadly, acknowledgement of male victims. It wasn't just something that happens to women, necessarily. It wasn't just rape. Those courts gave us jurisprudence about other forms of sexual violence, forced nudity, sexual humiliation in detention as a form of torture, things like that. So that was interesting um, coming in the early 2000s, right? We also had great jurisprudence on forced marriage out of the Special Court for Sierra Leone in the extraordinary uh, chambers in the courts of Cambodia. And then more recently at the International Criminal Court, we've had you know some progress. We had, of course, an initial conviction in the case of Jean-Pierre Bemba Gombo, but that was overturned on appeal for reasons that I necessarily I won't, I won't go into on this on this broadcast. But so that was a little bit disappointing because I think there was great effort to bring those charges um, in a pretty complicated case there. But more recently, you know, in 2019, out of Democratic Republic Congo case um, of Bosco and Taganda, we have a conviction. Right, Taganda was convicted of 18 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including rape and sexual slavery. And that conviction was upheld on appeal in 2021. Um, we also had right around that time, right after that 2020, our conviction in the case against Dominic Onwen. Actually, sorry, the conviction was more recent than that. But that was also a case that where sexual violence featured quite heavily, including being the first time forced pregnancy was charged as a standalone crime against humanity, along with forced marriage as an inhumane act, crime against humanity. So these are breakthroughs at the International Criminal Court that we're excited to see this momentum building. And that's just the international tribunals. We've got lots of domestic tribunals that have been producing incredible jurisprudence, right? I think looking at Guatemala and the Sepuzarco case there against indigenous, where 
two former military officers were convicted of crimes, including sexual crimes against indigenous women, a number of cases in Africa coming out of even tribunals in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, and the case against the former president of Chad that was tried in Senegal, right? The case of Isen Agre, um, which I had the pleasure of contributing to a bit. And then you look at universal jurisdiction, right? In, in all over Europe, Germany has really sort of produced some incredible jurisprudence quite recently, taking on many of the Daesh and ISIS cases, including cases involving crimes against humanity, involving sexual violence. So I think keep an eye on Colombia, the HEP trial there, trials there, and also Central African Republic, a special court there, even case coming through Guinea. So there's a lot going on. The same part of your question was about deterrence, and I guess it depends what you mean by deterrence. It's an interesting question. And I think if, if one's looking for you know empirical evidence that prosecution of conflict-related sexual violence reduces its you know, prevalence or its incidence in a certain context, then that's harder to prove. I mean, I think student uh, scholars like Michael Broach and others have been looking at big data and they're not finding that correlation per se. But I think it's a lot more nuanced than that, actually. What's more interesting to me is whether the threat of prosecution or the social norms strengthened by accountability efforts have preventative value at all at the individual and social level. And as we, you know, many of us sort of emphasized when we were developing special representative on sexual violence and conflict Camilla Patton's framework on the prevention of conflict-related sexual violence. You know, when we borrow from deterrence theory, we understand that for prosecution to actually deter criminal acts, the threat of prosecution must be certain and consistent. Otherwise, folks might just take a chance, right? So this is this is promising, right? This is generally where we haven't been strong enough. We haven't been consistent enough and certain enough in our prosecutions. We have to open up all avenues of accountability so that people feel, oh my goodness, there is actually a good chance and a clear um, likelihood that, that I could be prosecuted for this. So there is, I think, preventative potential there. We just have to really strengthen all of the avenues of accountability, not relying on any one particular court, but opening up national, regional, and international mechanisms to ensure accountability. And then I think, yes, then the likelihood of deterrence becomes a lot clearer in that way. These cases, you know, these trials are important anyway. They build sort of the social norm of responsibility for these crimes and really emphasize that this is wrong and there will be there will be consequences for for commission. So I think as a social norm building exercise, these trials are incredibly important and do have they do signal that there that there that accountability is the is the priority of a society. And I think actually one more thing, it's stigmatizing to be called a rapist, actually. And so we don't know, we need more research on this, but we have a little bit of research about how certain armed actors, you know, they don't want to be labeled a sex offender, right? Because rape is also shameful. It means you can't like get sex through your, through voluntarily, right? It means you have to force a woman to be with you. And, and there's this idea, at least in some some studies that we've seen that maybe perpetrators, they resist, they would resist conviction in charging for this particular form of violence. And we saw this a little bit in cases, the Minova case in Eastern DRC. We also know in the Ampe case, the personal charge of rape against him seemed to be the one thing that he reacted quite, quite strongly to, actually. So I think there is something there about individual perpetrators' reluctance to be charged as rapists or sexual violators as compared to um, charged by with other crimes. But we need more research. We need to understand that better. Thank you, Professor Seedinger. Uh, now, shifting gears a little bit and focusing on the Ukraine war, what has the situation been like with regards to sexual violence? You're talking about the most recent invasion. You know, there's a lot that we don't know because, you know, sexual violence is a crime that requires physical proximity. So when we're talking about the current invasion, where this has happened, for the most part, is in areas that were at some point occupied by Russian forces, right? And in those areas, reporting barriers have been quite steep. And so I think that there's just, as a first statement, I think there's a lot that we we don't know yet because slowly areas are where there has been Russian troop presence are slowly being liberated and people are adjusting to this transition and in you know in some degree slow degrees maybe coming forward more to seek services and report what happened to them so that is to say you know i think we're about to learn a lot more um, as more areas become liberated um, so that is just a, a caveat i think 
there are things that we do know, of course, and there are cases that have already been brought in the Ukrainian national system. And so, for one thing, the groups, the civil society groups that were have long been providing domestic violence hotline services, they were hearing throughout the past year things that were happening, right? They were getting some requests for emergency contraception, or they were getting some calls that sounded not like domestic violence, but by raped by external actors. And in some cases, it, it was clear that they were referring to Russian soldiers. So I think we have learned that this is certainly happening and, and has been happening in the occupied areas and any areas where Russian troops have been, had a physical presence, like briefly around Kiev and Bucha. And what we were hearing, you know, we've probably seen in the news, right? Raids on homes, people being gang rape, including in front of victims and service families, family members, including in front of their children, parents, siblings. We've also been hearing about concerns about sexual violations occurring in detention, which of course would include against men. And those forms of torture, I think we'll hear more about again as, as these communities are released. And I think apart from just the rape that most of us are thinking about there are other forms of sexual violence, certainly, that we'll be learning about, including other forms of gendered harm, right? The way people might be treated differently on account of their gender. Now, that might be forms of discriminatory harm that are not gendered on the face of the act, right? They're not gendered acts, but were motivated by gender of the person in front of them. And so I think we will see more and more of that. We're going to learn more about the differential treatment of men and women or even with their intersecting characteristics, men of a certain age or women of a certain age. So, so I think we will learn more about that in the future. I do think disclosure and reporting has been difficult, right? We have historically in Ukraine, relatively low rates of reporting of gender-based violence, a lot of maybe lack of confidence in the justice system for this type of crime historically. And so that might contribute to hesitation to report and lack of certainty about whether the judicial system will help you now, particularly in the middle of armed conflict. So I think formal reporting, it's happening to some degree. And the Ukrainian authorities are bringing some of these cases, um, including sexual violence cases, um, they are in trial right now. But I, I think there persist some reporting barriers. And so when either the conflict subsides and or faith in the justice system to deal with these crimes is restored. I think it's just going to be a lot that we, we are hearing. Thank you for that. So what has the role been of the UN Human Rights Council's Independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine so far on the ground? Yeah, that commission is very important and it's been conducting it's three commissioners on it and then their whole team, but they've conducted a number of field missions. And I think most recently, they issued a report in the fall after their recent visit, I believe it was in October. And they have been really trying to document what has been happening in different parts of the country. So in October, their report noted, um, at least with you know, if you're at, if you're curious with respect to conflict with sexual violence, just a number of violations they were hearing across the country, with victims ranging from age four to 80 years old, right? They have been collecting, as, as most commissions of inquiry will do, they'll, they'll do their fact-finding and they'll, they'll collect and make their periodic reports. I believe the commission is due to issue a comprehensive report in March, actually, so this month. And in that report, they will have robust findings and also pretty clear recommendations for accountability. So I think that will be very helpful to those of us who are watching and, and wondering the different avenues for justice here. Yeah, just stay tuned. That, that report should be forthcoming. And now looking at the ICC, we know that neither Russia nor Ukraine are state parties to the ICC. So how effective do you think they would be in prosecuting crimes of sexual violence in the current invasion of Ukraine? And then do you think this calls for other international or national systems of justice or even special tribunals to play a larger role in this? Yeah, you know, it's true that neither Russia nor Ukraine are state parties to the Rome Statute. It doesn't necessarily impede the International Criminal Court from getting involved, right? So the Ukraine itself availed itself of jurisdiction of the court twice, once a few years ago in 2014, uh, for allowing the ICC to take jurisdiction and look into crimes allegedly committed during the Maidan protests at that time. And then after the occupation of Crimea, Ukraine 
again availed itself of ICC jurisdiction from 2014 and then into the into the future. Actually, there wasn't a cutoff point then. So because of those two sort of affirmative invitations of ICC jurisdiction, the court can become involved in the Ukraine matter, even though they're not states parties. Now, there are different ways to do that. There are different mechanisms by which one actually starts working on, on something at the ICC and just the way this happened was quite remarkable. So instead of waiting for a Security Council resolution or referral, right, which would have been complicated given the constitution or the composition of the of that council, Prosecutor Kareem Khan just signaled that he was ready to to work on this further and pick up where Prosecutor Ben Suda had left off. And it was over 40 states that made a joint referral, ultimately. All the states were parties to the loan statute. They could make referral. And then the prosecutor could start working on it and sort of not wait for further Security Council or pretrial chamber movements. So, so that's how the, the court, the, at least the Office of the Prosecutor, has been able to start really digging back into Ukraine and this question of this most recent invasion. It's been a very strong relationship this past year, actually. There's been a lot of engagement between at least the Office of the Prosecutor and the Ukrainian Office of the Prosecutor General. Prosecutor Khan has made a number of trips already. I know he's heading there imminently. There's been great exchange between OTP analysts, uh, working with some of the investigators and analysts in Ukraine. And I think it really will be a very healthy exchange of best practices and information going forward so that the ICC can take certain cases that it would under its normal jurisdiction to look at those deemed most responsible, but then really support the Ukrainian authorities in pursuing a lot of the mid-level, higher mid-level, low-level actors who are involved in these crimes. That has been very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Just to follow up on that, so do you think that the ICC would then support Ukraine's national systems of justice more rather than taking on a lot of the work themselves and they would just leave things up to Ukraine? You know, it's this is very much an exercise of the principle of complementarity, which is what the Rumstead is supposed to do, right? So the national systems, whether it's Ukraine or Uganda or Kenya or wherever else, the national systems are supposed to play the primary role in accountability. And ICC is supposed to step back, right? And until and unless it's very clear that there's no genuine you know, willingness or ability to do an investigation or prosecution against a specific individual for specific acts. So yeah, it's very much, very much regarding a question of burden sharing here and coordination. And so I think the hope is that the ICC and other actors, not just the ICC, but other civil society groups, OSCE, we were just like many, many actors are working to support the Ukraine Office of the Prosecutor General. Um, and for the ICC's part, lending expertise that's uh, appropriate and even working to do some exchange of information about certain cases to see you know, which case should go where. But, but yeah, it's very much going to be sort of a shared burden, as, as it should be anywhere, not just in Ukraine. Thank you, Professor Seelinger. Now, just to round off our conversation, how do you see the next year playing out in terms of collecting evidence, um, getting the ball rolling for prosecutions, and just overall addressing sexual violence in Ukraine? I think we'll see a lot of movement this year, actually. Um, You know, in 2019, the Ukrainian Office of the Prosecutor General set up essentially a war crimes division to work on cases that they already had prior to this recent invasion last February. Um, it was in this past fall that within that war crimes division, a, a special unit focused on contemplated sexual violence was established. It's being led by a really super impressive woman named Irina Didenko. We'll see shortly, actually. And she is laser focused on making sure that she can build the capacity of her team in, in Kiev, in the capital, but then work very closely with the regional prosecution offices who are, you know, it's a decentralized system in a way, and support them, provide them with expertise on copyright sexual violence, and cross-train with them as much as possible so that they can bring cases that are arising in their jurisdictions. So I think that is very exciting because now there's really a stakeholder within the war crimes division at the OPG there who will take responsibility for and really take leadership of this set of investigation and prosecution. I think there's also talk of law reform. You know, the the Ukrainian legal framework right now 
it's not quite sufficient to try these cases as international crimes. So there's been some law reform on sort of on the table recently, but then I think there are more uh, more changes and amendments that are likely to be proposed in the coming years. So I think with a strengthened legal framework, this will be much easier um, just to charge clearly and make sure that we're capturing all the different types of harm that are arising currently in this conflict, including those involving sexual violence. So I think those are two areas um, that give me some hope that we'll see progress there. Finally, it's just, you know, one opportunity, which also at the same time is a challenge, is the amount of interest in Ukraine and the effort that many different countries and organizations are contributing. It's very heartening, of course, but it, it's suffering a little bit from lack of coordination, I think. And so we really what we need to do as international actors looking to support justice efforts and support and protection efforts within Ukraine, just, just to take a step back and, and map ourselves a little bit and make sure everyone's adding value and is working in coordination with others. I think that would be really important. Otherwise, we're just going to have a flurry of activity and just creating confusion and, and not much impact, unfortunately. Thank you so much, Professor Siedinger. Um, This is a very difficult conversation to have, but it is also incredibly important. So thank you for having this conversation with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to, to hearing how this goes. Knowing our audience is critical to delivering stimulating content that adds value. We want to hear from you, what you like, what you don't like, and especially what you'd like to hear more from us. Send us your thoughts by completing our brief listener feedback survey at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash feedback. Your input is critical to help us remain competitive amongst over 2 million podcasts globally. Beyond the Headlines is an initiative of master's students within the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Our promise is to make complex and often overlooked policy issues accessible to Canadians and therefore make an important contribution to the public discourse. We are always looking to expand our network of guests and partner organizations. Beyond the Headlines is open to new ideas and creating content that meets a high standard of integrity. If you think that you or anyone or any organization you know would make a great guest for our show, please get in touch through our contact form at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash contact. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Professor Noel Kenivet and Professor Kim Tui Sillinger. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss the topic of sexual violence and armed conflict in recognition of the upcoming International Women's Day to reflect on women's rights and equality. Today's show was produced by myself, Yunji Huang, and my co-producers, Ragini Singh Panwar and Anukriti Randev. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you're listening. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Next week, we'll bring you an important discussion about the Russia and Ukraine war as an incentive for green energy transition. Be sure to tune in as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.